This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. That's climate action now. This Prime Minister does not like scrutiny. The Labor Party is clearly embarrassed. This is a Prime Minister who cannot stand up for integrity. And I still remain a loyal and faithful government member. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvel, as the host of RN Drive. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And the second week of Parliament for the year, PK... And we saw some more guerrilla warfare from the National Party. It's deep trench warfare going on there. At the time of recording on Thursday morning, Michael McCormack is still in charge of the Nationals. Last <laughs> I like time the I way checked. you say that at the time of recording, well, he's still got, in charge. We've got to really clarify this. He's called for unity. He sat down for an interview with Channel 9's Chris Yulman, said he's got majority support, that he didn't come to Canberra to lead a rabble. And yet uh, he is. Yeah, but that's exactly what he's doing, Fran. <laughs> he's leading a rabble, essentially admitting he's leading a rabble, asked very directly by Chris Yulman, you know, whether he'll face another leadership challenge. He says, time will tell. And he's right because... It's kind of inevitable. I mean, this north-south split, it is deep and it's gone into its second week and I think it's a huge thing now. This is unstoppable. You were nearly going to say death spiral, weren't you? I was. Um, look, I think Michael McCormick, clearly he revealed he still thinks it's a thing, OK? Time will tell. What kind of an answer is that when you are asked, you know, you're going to see another leadership challenge? No is the answer he should have given, but clearly he thinks it's possible. Most people think it's possible. Personally, I, I surely it can't happen anytime soon. That would be diabolical, I think, after the last debacle last week. But, you know, it, it was kicked off again this week, given another burst of life because... Uh, there was a double cross of Michael McCormick in the parliament at the start of this week. Five members of his party voted against the coalition candidate for deputy speaker that Michael McCormick had tapped on the shoulder and instead they sided with Labor to install Lou O'Brien. Now, PK, I know you've got some more to tell us about this, but just a reminder who Lou O'Brien is. He's the guy who moved the spill against Michael McCormick last week in the party room and then kicked off this second week by announcing he was going to quit the Nats and instead sit as an LNP candidate outside the Nationals. So, you know, the fact that some Queensland Nats with Labor rewarded Lou O'Brien for that action speaks volumes, I think. It certainly does. And what I can tell you is that collusion was definitely happening. So rebel Nats, I can't name who, but I've spoken to senior Labor sources who say at the end of last week they were talking essentially to rebel Nats about getting up one of their candidates to the deputy speaker position. And then they thought, this is Labor, that it was the nationals, the rebel nationals that would actually nominate a candidate that then they would lock in behind, yeah, to get mm -hmm. up because they were going to go for their candidate. That candidate, Fran, they thought was going to be Ken O'Dowd, a <laughs> man that I interviewed in an interview which was, well, pretty brutally frank as he revealed what really happened what he revealed in this interview with me was that um, he was going to be nominated by Barnaby Joyce. He's the guy who named him. He said Barnaby Joyce was going to name, uh, name me, nominate me to be Deputy Speaker. Then Ken O'Dowd got spooked basically, right? He got nervous about all of this and thought, oh, I shouldn't do this and withdrew. So all of a the sudden there wasn't a rebel candidate. Through communications on the House of Representatives floor, it was communicated to Labor to the Labor Party that there was no longer a candidate, a rebel nat candidate who would take the deputy speakership. So Labor had to think quickly on their feet. Labor's Tony Burke is the guy who's kind of like in charge of opposition business. Lou O'Brien, right, 
leaves the chamber in some sort of, you know, lots of detail here, but quirk of the the rules, you can nominate someone in that kind of framework. So Labor thinks, Mm -hmm. ha ha, we'll go for that guy. They weren't sure whether he left the chamber because it was communicated to the rebels, so you know, that if someone leaves the chamber, one of these people, we can nominate them, right? So then when Lou leaves, Labor thinks, has he left because that's a nod that we should go and and do it? They thought probably, but they weren't sure, so they nominate him, not knowing for sure if he'd accept the nomination. He comes back, as history will reveal, and he's on the record and does accept the nomination. And then, as you've made quite clear, the, the rebel Nats vote for him. So does the crossbench, so does Labor, and he gets up. Now, some people would say, this is just all parliamentary shenanigans. Why mm. does it even matter? Well, I'll tell you why it does, right? The fact is the Nationals had voted for Damien Drum, who did support Michael McCormack to be their person, get the pay rise that comes with it to be deputy speaker, and then they split to get their own candidate up. And, yes, Labor, I think, you know, brilliant on the parliamentary tactics of the way they pulled this off. They thought the candidate was going to be Ken O'Dowd and they just lock in behind, or maybe David Gillespie, that's another name they thought would get up. They ended up coming up with this idea of Lou O'Brien. But the fact that it even happened, and it sounds ridiculous, but the fact that it even happened is because the Nationals are deeply divided. So the Prime Minister then went on and tried to spin the story and, you know, you'd expect him to and say, we still got someone from our side of Parliament up. But the fact that this is the guy that just resigned from the Nationals party room that morning is deeply embarrassing for the government and has been really a really, really untidy week. Is that the language? Untidy. I think we can ramp it up from untidy. That is a great revelation of how that played out. And I think you're right. Why does it matter? Well, it was an ambush that the leader didn't see coming. Deeply embarrassing, deeply humiliating for the leader of the Nats in particular. But PK, you mentioned Ken O'Dowd there, how he thought he was going to do it and then he pulled out. That interview you did with Ken O'Dowd this week was absolute gold. I think we've got to just hear a little bit of it. Yeah, it was good to see that uh, Lou, who comes from Queensland, he's only a couple of doors away from where I live and I know he'll do a good job and it's good to have one of our own in in that position. So I'm really happy for for him and happy for Queensland and, uh, you know, we can't be all Victoria and New South Wales. So Lou, who comes from Queensland, one of our own, (laughs) he let it all hang out in that interview. He was absolutely physically, it seemed, incapable of saying no to answer any of your questions, which was great to listen to. People should be physically incapable. (laughs) People should just say the truth, so good on him. My question at the end of all this, though, is this about... Queensland, having more Queenslanders, having one of our own in the front bench, is that the attitude in the Nats or is this about a real policy split? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Column A, column B, Fran. It is geographical. There's no doubt about it. If you look at just the carve up of who's backing who. So there is 100% a uh, geographical element to it. But it's so much deeper and it's so, the acrimony in that party is so deep now and the way it's spilling over into, you know, the, the entire government's agenda and the fact that any interview they do now they have to talk about this is must be such an annoying headache for Scott Morrison. But at the end of the day, it's not going to go away until somehow it gets resolved. And my own view, and we can talk about it a bit more with our guest, is that ultimately it's going to have to get resolved You know, Michael McCormack might say it really was, but it clearly isn't because every day there is, you know, more shenanigans. And so whether there will be a sort of 
pathway where uh, I think another candidate gets up. I think, you know, someone like David Littleproud, I think that's the most ultimately mm. likely outcome. In the leadership, you mean? Yeah, I really think yeah. because clearly Michael McCormack is being white-anted in the most full-on way because there's a context here. Every single day, there's leak after leak after leak about things he's done, right? So, you know, this uh, centenary um, dinner for the Nationals and some sort of plan from Michael McCormack's office to kind of try and make it that, that these parliamentarians who are attending can use their travel allowances to attend by piggybacking other things there and then Michael McCormack having to withdraw from doing that. The fact that that was leaked to the Courier-Mail and then story after story to try and dismantle or disrupt him, right, Michael McCormack. Isn't that what's happening every day? How, how can he continue? Well, I think that's right. Disunity is death and I think it's going to lead to the political demise of Michael McCormack at some point. But I think the bigger issue, because this is, yes, it's about Queenslanders, but it's also about coal and about climate policy and that makes the Nats tension Scott Morrison's problem. And this week that was all brought to the head through this with the Nats, but also because... Uh, Zali Stegel, she's the independent MP for the seat of Warringah. She's the giant killer from the last election. She knocked off Tony Abbott. Um, she did that on a platform of climate change and she's announced and revealed her private members bill this week, which was that the parliament needs to commit and put in place uh, a climate change commission to lock in a commitment to bringing Australia to zero emissions by 2050, um, a policy that is deeply, deeply resented and rejected by the Nats. Let's have a listen to Zali. By locking in a long-term net zero plan by 2050, uh, it means that we can give business and the private sector that long-term uh, policy stability and certainty that they're calling out for. Do you support I, I a decarbonised economy by mid-century? Well, I, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen the bill, so I can't really comment. No, do you on support the goal of zero emissions by 2050? Well, no, I don't see a pathway to, for that. So, Matt Canavan, he's the Nat doesn't think we'll see a pathway to zero emissions. The only problem for Matt Canavan and actually for the Prime Minister is Australia needs to come up with a pathway. The government's going to have to make a commitment, a long-term commitment, within the next few months because there's another major international conference where we'll be expected to announce it, a la the Paris Climate Agreement. So Australia's going to have to decide how far we're going to go. Will it be net zero emissions by 2050? Let's talk about that more with our guest in the party room coming up, Laura Tingle. <laughs> Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent for 7.30. Welcome to the party room. Well, hello, ladies. Hello. Can I say ladies? You, you can, can say ladies. Hello. That's what we are. Hello, Isn't lady. There somebody in, I've got this feeling that there was somebody in Parliament who used to say in a vaguely creepy way, hello, ladies, but um, I'm not saying it in a creepy way. No, you're yeah, not it's creepy, one of those but there have been smoking lots of jacket people. lines. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Hey, um, Laura, PK's been giving us the good oil on that ambush of uh, Michael McCormick in the House of Reps when Lou O'Brien was the surprise candidate uh, to take out the deputy speaker role. I know you were watching it unfold. How did it feel? to you as that happened? What did you see going on? Well, I suppose what I saw was another example of how the coalition really doesn't get parliament. Um, and one suspicion had to be that Labor knew exactly what it was doing when Tony Burke jumped up to his feet, which I think turns out to have been the case. But that to me is the sort of most interesting thing. I mean, Labor saw an opportunity and took it. Uh, Anthony Albanese and Tony Burke are absolute masters of the parliament. And, uh, and they just saw an opportunity and played it for all it's worth. So that's the way it goes. But when you're in a position of really 
closely counted seats, you know, small government majorities. Mm. You've just got to learn how to run the parliament. And the coalition hasn't been very good at it, as we've seen over a number of years. They just don't seem to take it all that seriously. But isn't the issue, though, Laura, fundamentally that, yes, of course, on the tactics they failed, I mean, obviously, but because the party, the Nationals specifically, but more broadly are bitterly divided, it seems, it's almost impossible to run the joint because a few people are just not behaving. Well, it makes it difficult to run the joint. Um, I suppose I'd point out that um, Anthony Albanese, as leader of the House during the Gillard years, kept things together with a minority government and, and with Kevin Rudd on the prowl. So it is a higher degree of difficulty, but it is not impossible. Um, but it does require a bit of respect for the parliament, dare I say. I mean, it, it requires you to go, actually, we do have to be answerable to the parliament. Uh, we do have to understand the way it works. Uh, we do have to be savvy politically to its processes. It also requires, as we've seen, the Prime Minister to get directly involved. You know, we had Lou O'Brien at the start of the week stepping down from the Nats, Scott Morrison talking to him, Scott Morrison working that out with him, and then this public humiliation of the Coalition's pick on the floor of the Parliament doesn't just look bad uh, and humiliate Michael McCormick, it's also a loss for Scott Morrison, which was why Labor was so uh, keen, I think, on, you know, getting involved in it. It's a distraction at the very least because you know, it's infighting, but it's also a distraction and a division around a major policy issue, the future of coal and climate policy. And this is difficult for Scott Morrison, like it's been difficult for Malcolm Turnbull. It's been difficult for past leaders. Absolutely. And uh, particularly, I think it's the policy issue that is really the one that sort of grabs my attention more so than, I mean, the parliamentary stuff was, you know, jolly good japes and everything, but it's the policy issue that's the tricky one. And uh, I think you've got to say at this stage that Scott Morrison's basically losing that. I mean, we've seen a succession of prime ministers being sort of dragged by the nationals to the right on these uh, climate change stroke energy issues. And I think the, the week has shown that Scott Morrison is in that trouble again. I mean, he had to try to appease the Nats after their own infighting last week by finally announcing this $4 million uh, for a feasibility study into the Collinsville coal-fired power station, uh, which he managed to keep at bay for the last 12 months. He sort of vaguely promised it, as you'd remember, before the last election and then kept on just not doing anything about it. So he'd been forced to do that the next thing, Labor once again asks a really smart political question about whether he supported this idea of an indemnity against a carbon price, which mm. the proponents of the scheme also want. And, of course, he didn't feel that he could say, no, they're not going to get it. He sort of fumbled and fiddled and said, oh, I'm for jobs for Queensland. And, uh, you know, it's not currently before the government, which was so transparent in the fact that he was completely limited in what he could say about coal because the Nats are just running riot at the moment. They are. And of course, there's the complication of like the, the split being so public in the coalition party room. Reports that, you know, senior ministers are telling moderate liberal MPs who are pushing for zero net emissions by 2050 to sort of quieten down and not have fights with the nationals, because in some ways that's what the nationals want. Uh, they like a fight. Clearly, some of these rebel Nats. These two positions 
Laura Tingle, don't seem to be easy to reconcile. And we've talked already in the podcast, even last week, because it's an ongoing debate about how the PM kind of tries to find that pathway. Can he find that pathway? Is it actually even possible or is this going to end up in a, in a genuine party split? Look, I find it really hard to believe that famous last words, I find it really hard to believe that the parties are going to split just because there's uh, influence in numbers. Now, you know, if you look at that sort of individual power base issue and then spread it out, it might have looked really great for Lou O'Brien, who was a Barnaby Joyce supporter, to resign from the Nationals party room. But what happens now? Well, Barnaby Joyce, if he tries to run again, has one less vote in the party mm-hmm. room. Um, and it's the same sort of thing. If the Queensland LNP split off by themselves, that might sort of make them, you know, a very uh, robust crossbench party, but they lose their influence in the government. The Nationals also lose out, which I don't think Barnaby Joyce at this point seems to really care about very much. I mean, I think the thing that's important to remember about the LNP MPs and senators is that apart from anything else, uh, whether they have an ideological belief in coal and jobs, they're trying to do two things. One of them is that they're trying to stop being attacked in a vote sense from the right by parties like One Nation. And I think they're also trying to pick up votes uh, from Labor in Queensland as well. So, you know, they've got a a quite pragmatic view of this, I think. You know, yes, they might have a view about coal, but it's all about getting votes at the next election. They feel that they're in really big trouble uh, as things stand and they're trying to sort of throw their weight round. I suppose what we've seen from the summer is that Scott Morrison isn't quite the politically savvy Prime Minister that he was being portrayed as after the election win. He's not very good at managing these relationships. The hubris in his office in the first six months of uh, of his term in the last half of last year was such that Everything did go through the Prime Minister's office. He didn't consult people, even even his own ministers, and he's now paying a really big price for that. Just picking up on what you said about, you know, the Nats are in trouble. They are in trouble from the right and, they, you know, from One Nation and Shooters and Fishers and then Matt Canavan trying to position them exactly, as you said, as the, as the party of workers, the party of coal workers trying to pick up some Labor votes. But as he said that, then I wonder, well, how do the farmers feel about the Nats describing themselves as the party of the coal miners? What mm. about the farmers who've been through the drought, going through the drought still, who've some of them suffered from the bushfires, the water shortages? And, and I'm wondering, floods. Yeah, and now mm. floods. And I'm just wondering if there's a trap that, or, or if Matt Canavan and others are misjudging, they're still fighting the last election and whether the summer of bushfires and floods has changed things. And certainly changed things in Scott Morrison's mind too. Well, I think this sort of idea about how they've become the party of coal rather than the party of of farmers is a really interesting and powerful one. It's such a stark transition for the history of the nationals. Of course, it also clearly uh, demonstrates that north-south divide. You know, I mean, yes, Queensland's been in drought, uh, but it hasn't had as extensive bushfires as as New South Wales, for example, which is the other sort of major base of the nationals. So... To me, it's a bit like people trying to be a bit too clever politically and probably coming a gutser as a result. There was a lot of talk during last year's election campaign, which you guys probably picked up too, about the fact that you know there's that band of independents, in, particularly in state politics yeah. in New South Wales, that runs sort of out from the northern coast and around out into the far west. And a lot of people 
whose judgment I trust were saying, you've got no idea how hostile people are out there to the Nats. And they were expecting some really big upsets. Now, eventually that didn't really translate into big changes in uh, numbers of seats, but you've got those minor parties sort of picking up the slack of the nationals out there. You know, the, the coalition eventually sort of enjoys the preference flow from them, but the politics of this from an outside perspective is quite bizarre. Bizarre is a good word for it, Laura. Let's talk about Labor and all of this. First mm. off, uh, of course, they, they orchestrated what we saw in, in the House of Representatives. But now there are other issues because there's been this revelation by Peter Van Onselen about this group, this, what are they called again? The Otis Group. The Otis Group. The Otis Group. Mm-hmm. Bunch of what? Basically, right-wingers meeting and discussing coal. Is that what they're doing? Uh, this is one of those stories which is mainly interesting because somebody's leaked it rather than what was happening, you know, right-wing Labor goes to dinner. One, the fact that it's leaked. Two, the fact that two of the sort of senior figures in it, um, Don Farrell and Kimberly Kitching, just happen to sort of find themselves in a place where they can be asked about it. Don Farrell outside the Otis restaurant where the group gets its name and the fact that there have been emails leaked about it. So the point about it is that they're sending a big warning shot across Anthony Albanese's line of view that they want a more assertive position on coal. Joel Fitzgibbon, uh, who's an old warrior from the right wing for years and years and years, is right in the thick of all of this. Um, I suppose I'd just make an aside observation, which is that you'd think that some politicians who who, like Don Farrell, may have been involved in the entire faceless men exercise, Mm. might have reflected on the impact on your reputation of being seen plotting outside Canberra restaurants. (laughs) (laughs) And particularly when it looks like Peter Van Onselen and the crew were able to pick him up walking into the restaurant, just looked a little bit staged, but um, I'm digressing. Yes, a little bit. Oh, look, it's just happening to be walking into the restaurant. Look, I've talked to a couple of people about it. It wasn't my story, of course, but, you know, trying to figure out how... What does this really mean? Mm. Uh, They say, look, it's not, you know, it's not sort of a challenge to Anthony Albanese. But, yes, they do want to get organised around these issues. They do want to... This is what we saw post-election and a more organised version of post-election, which is we need to kind of pivot on these issues around Mm. coal miners' jobs and all of that sort of stuff. But, gee, that'd be be hard-pressed to get Albo, who's, you know, a, a left warrior of so many years, to be more conceding to the right on this. I mean, he's, so far, he's been very open, hasn't he? Well, I think there, there are two separate issues if you think about uh, what's going on at the moment. One of them is about coal-fired power, which is what the Nats have been running on with this mm. proposal about Collinsville. And Anthony Albanese has been quite a hard line on that. In, in that interview he did with you uh, a couple of days ago, Fran, where he said, you know, there should be no government money going into coal-fired power. So that's, you know, one, if you like, for the greenies. Uh, The issue, of course, for both sides is about the future of coal mining. Now, Albo may be from the left, but he is also really old-school Labor, and I don't think we should presume that he is not sort of aware of the issues about uh, miners and job security and all those things. I think what he needs to do is to find as does the government, frankly, is to find a really credible argument that says, okay, 
not just coal-fired power stations, but coal mines are going to become stranded assets over the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, you've got people like BlackRock, the big investment global giant, dumping uh, thermal coal, getting out of uh, those sorts of products. It's going to happen. It's it's a bit like uh, coal-fired power. It's going to happen. So what you need to be able to do is to say to people, look, we know that this is all going to happen. Uh, we know that you're worried about your job. We're not going to close down any mines tomorrow, but we have got to give you a transition path into different industries, different skills, as Labor did so successfully during the 1980s when it started to cut back tariffs in those really highly protected areas mm. like textile, clothing textile, and footwear. Textile, clothing and, and footwear. Well, TCF, TCF, yeah. TCF and cars. All right, I just want to pivot like, and change the topic quite you know, openly and um, blatantly. Mm. I love that word. Segway, segway. Segway, segway. And I can't segway find a better one, so segway. I'm just going to tell people I'm doing it. <laughs> Let's talk about Indigenous Affairs briefly. I uh, would love to give it an entire podcast and perhaps we will, but we had the Closing the Gap statement, which was significant. There was a conversation about referendum and timing, the Prime Minister saying in terms of Indigenous recognition, um, you know, he wants consensus. It won't necessarily happen in this parliament parliamentary time frame, which we knew. But then something else happened this week, which I actually think out of all of them is really significant. And that was this high court decision, um, which was significant. Now the government's looking into the court held that Aboriginal Australians are not within the reach of the aliens power under the constitution. And this may have implications for the operation of the Australian Citizenship Act and the Migration Act. Alan Tudge, uh, the, the minister, says he's looking into this. But Laura, this is quite significant, isn't it? It is and it isn't, says Tingle SC. <laughs> um, <laughs> I trust you. Um, based on my extensive reading on this, the thing that seems to complicate it is that very unusually you actually had seven separate judgments. All the High Court justices had something to say about this, all had different arguments and the sort of view amongst much more senior SCs than me um, is that uh, that this will make it very hard to, even though there was a ultimately a four to three majority, it will make it... Uh, a very complex case from which to sort of establish precedence because every time you mention one justice's arguments, somebody will say, oh, yes, but somebody else said such mm. and such. So it is interesting in terms of the reflections it puts back onto the sort of constitutional issues around uh, indigeneity, whether it's the race power, the association with land, all those sorts of things. I think it is really fascinating in that respect. I don't know of itself how it's going to play out in the courts. I thought it was extraordinary, though, that Christian Porter, the Attorney-General, saying, oh, well, we can we can fix this by using another part of the Constitution yeah. and legislating. And I'm thinking, is this really such a big thing? This is, as far well, as we know, there's two guys, you know. Um, do you need a whole piece of legislation, given that the High Court, you know, has this multiplicity of judgments in this case, do you actually need to immediately legislate? Are there thousands and thousands no. of non-citizen Indigenous Australians who are all about to be, you know, mm. we're trying to get well, rid of? Well, there's not. I mean, that's the point. In that same interview that Christian Porter, the Attorney-General, raised that notion of perhaps, you know, reverting to the um, the powers within the Constitution, he already said very significant immediate ramifications for what might not be a very large group of people. In other words, it's a small group of people, so why are they so exercised? It just reminds me a little <laughs> of a response you know, the WIC response to the native title of Mabo, I think feels like we're going back to that reaction, that response. Well, and one which doesn't have any 
really clear implications, you know, and certainly, dare one say, no financial implications for the wider public. I mean, no. WIC, as as you would remember, was uh, sort of became notorious for the sort of bucket loads of extinguishment and similar dog whistling that went on in a really shameful part of our parliamentary history because people were frightened that their pastoral leases were going to be uh, affected by native yeah. title as a result of WIC. And now, their backyards, nothing... don't forget the backyards. Mm. Oh, yes, you, you, uh, you Hills Hoist. Um, I forgot about the Hills Hoist. But, yeah, yeah so there's not that same, you know, threat to whistle about on this one. So I just think it's, I think the coalition's just got into this mode of just immediately responding on on these sorts of, you know, cultural, culture war uh, issues as they perceive them. Uh, you know, and when there are actually quite a lot of larger issues that I think they could probably be getting on with. Lots of large issues. And I'm glad that we've been able to pick your, are you ready for this one? Very large mm. brain. Laura oh. Tingle. <laughs> Boom. Uh, look, I tried really hard there. Hey, Laura, thanks for coming in. <laughs> Great to talk to you both. Thanks, Laura. Well, that's it from us. Until next time, we are on Twitter. Use the hashtag The Party Room. And tweet us your questions, your feedback, your comments. Email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. We love to hear from you. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.